thank you for coming here today. It's me, Linda Sage, on Learning From Life. One thing I can promise you, there'll be people to meet over the airways here you'll never forget. Some, as long as you live. Let's just say, most have had what could be termed as an interesting life. It's not what happens, it's how you deal with it. And one line from any of them could change the way you deal with things forever. There'd be landing from all parts of the planet, all ages, backgrounds and experiences. Telling the truth of how it was and how they manage things may just help you miss a rock or two along your road too. Hi and welcome to this week's uh, podcast. As always, phenomenal guests have uh, agreed to join me and today is no different. We are travelling over the other side of the pond, so to speak. Even if I wasn't just in my virtual studio today, I would have to be because uh, we couldn't be together anyway. So the amazing, the immensely talented Darren LaCroix. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here for you, Linda. You're very kind. It's a great time to speak to you. As I say, we have such a different world to, to normal, so there is so much to talk about. So let's just go back a little bit and, and, and start because you are eminently successful in the speaking world and you do a, an awful lot of training and speaking on a regular basis, but it hasn't always been that way, has it? Uh, definitely, definitely not. I was not born with the gift of gab. It's been a long road. So where did it all start? Well, ironically, as you like to talk to, it really started with a huge failure, the big failure of a dream. When uh, I was growing up uh, later in high school and in college, I discovered that I had this passion for entrepreneurialism. I just, I knew somehow, some way, I didn't want to work for a big company. I had to just, I had to do it my own. I didn't care if I worked 18 hour days. I wanted to do it for me and not work for somebody else. And that's a yin and a yang for anybody. <laughs> but um, I went out, I went for the American dream. I bought a Subway sandwich shop. And I, it's the only way I could get a college, a loan after college to get and start a business with no business experience other than a small landscaping business. But I dove all in. Uh, I went to subway school. I really tried to do well. And I realized along the way <laughs> later on that I made some big mistakes. But I was a kid. I was 22. I knew everything. And ego can be a negative thing. <laughs> I was mad at the world. I, I blamed everybody because about a year and a half later, they opened another subway store right down the road for me, and it took all my profits off the top. Now, at the time, I was mad, and I blamed everyone. The truth is, I made the decisions. I chose the location. I hired a lawyer. I chose to not listen to him, and I did all these things. I was mad at the landlord, and what I wasn't doing was taking a look at myself, looking in the mirror. I remember hearing a story from Jim Rohn, a great motivational speaker, uh, amazing mentor to, to Tony Robbins, as a matter of fact. And Jim tells a story where he went to his mentor and his mentor said, Jim, come back tomorrow with a list of why you're not successful. And he comes back with a list and his mentor reads it. And he's like, one problem with this list, Jim, your name ain't on it. And that was a big lesson for me. And I had the same thing that I blamed everybody else, but I made all the decisions. I chose the franchise. I chose the location. Um, it was all me. So 
I needed to grow up. So it was a great business failure that took some time to heal the wounds because now I was living at home with mom and dad. I had school loans, college loans, university loans, you would call them. Uh, I still had business loans because I sold it at a loss. So now I had business loans, but no business to pay it off with. So I was at a low point. My buddy gave me a motivational tape of a man named Brian Tracy. And he asked the question, he said, what would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? And I thought, if I wouldn't fail, if I could do anything, I would be a comedian. That would be the ultimate. Making an audience laugh and earning a living at that, that would be amazing. And all of a sudden, the little voice of reason on my shoulder said, but you're not funny, which was true. I was not funny. No one ever said you should be a comedian, but that wasn't the question. The question was, what would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? So because I was at such a low point, I said, you know what? I have nothing to lose. Uh, why not at least go for it? So it didn't become a dream at that point. It became a, I don't want to live with the regret of wondering what if, what if Brian Tracy was right? So I said, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to just do it once, just once so I can let go of that dream. And I also knew that listening to Brian Tracy, so many lessons I learned from him driving in my car. One of them was you got to go all in. Because the only thing worse than not doing something is doing it half-heartedly and not really knowing how you would do. See, if we don't go all in, if we go half-heartedly, if you just tip your toe, stick your toe in the water, then you don't really know. You don't really know. So I decided I was going to try this, but I was going all in because I was having no regrets. So I went and I asked a comedian. I went to a comedy show. I had never been in a comedy club in my life. I went to a comedy show. I asked the headliner comedian for advice. He said, well, number one, you need to get the book. I'm like, book? There's a book about stand-up comedy? Of course, there's books about everything, but I wasn't thinking that way. And then number two, he said, you need to go to an open mic night and watch other people who are just starting out. Now, when I told my friends and family, they compared me to Jerry Seinfeld, someone just thinking about it to someone at the top of their profession. It's not fair, but it's human nature. So I get it and I understand it. But at the time, it was really challenging. So I went out and got the book. He said, get the book, Stand Up Comedy, the book by Judy Carter. So I was a good boy. I went and got the book. And he said, go to open mic night. So I found one in Stitches Comedy Club in Boston, Massachusetts, right outside of Fenway Park where the Red Sox play. And I went in on Sunday night and it was like the smell of stale beer, the sticky floors. And I thought, this is cool. And I watched people go up for their first time, and they were horrible, horrible. And I thought, I could do that. And it actually inspired me. I'm like, I could be that bad. So I went back every Sunday night for two months and watched other people bomb. I also watched people have to have a drink to go up on stage, to have the guts, to bring down their inhibitions. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. It's going to be all me. I may live by it. I may die by it, but I'm going up there raw. And I brought a bunch of my friends. It was April 26, 1992. And I told my friends, because I had a history of chickening out on everything. I would have these big dreams, but never have the guts to pursue them. So I told my friends, I'm like, you make sure I go up there. I don't care if I kick or scream or whine, make sure I go up there. And they did. And I did. 
And I was so nervous. Uh, Linda, you've seen the video clip of this. I was shaking. My voice was shaking. I'm looking at my notes. And I had this one moment where I really messed up. And I, I used my body language. I was talking about this rocket launch took off uh, in my hometown. And I was making light of it. And I said the rocket took off in Auburn. And I said it went vertically. But I did motioned horizontally with my arm. And I was really into it. And I realized my mistake at that moment. I just said, ah, shoot. And then all of a sudden, I realized the audience was laughing. I said, what's that laugh? Where did that come from? And it was the only laugh I got that night. And as I walked off stage, this man put his arm around my shoulder. He said, don't worry, man. It's just your first time. And I remember thinking, don't worry, it's just my first time. Did you see what I did? I got a laugh. No one told me I could do this. I am all in. I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to get every book I can. I'm going to get every mentor I can. And I just never look back from that moment. But then that led on to so many other things because you use humor really as your stepping stone into the speaking world. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so thankful for my stand-up comedy background. And I got every mentor that I could, and I took every class that I could. And one of my mentors, in fact, all of my mentors in the comedy world said, every time you go on stage is a time that you grow. So if you don't go on stage, you won't grow. Any day you don't get up there is a day that you're not getting better. And I thought, what? I thought I have to be good when I go up. They said, no, 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 no. You have to go up to get good. And that's a big mind shift, especially for somebody who's just starting out. So when I was there and took every class that I could, they said stage time, stage time, stage time. And so I took that to heart because that's the one thing I could grasp onto. I didn't have to be a great writer, but I had to go up on stage. I didn't have to be great at delivery, but I had to go up on stage. So I grew incrementally, but I grew and I was, I could start to notice it and it was a slow path. But then I realized if I want to get better, I have to like up my stage time. And so I was sitting at my desk. I had to get a day job to support myself. So I worked for Bose Corporation and this newsletter came across my desk about this thing called Toastmasters. And I was like, Toastmasters, what's that? And I start reading about it and I realized it was a public speaking organization and they met you know, every week. And I thought, hey, wait a minute. Here's a place I could get stage time during the day. Comedy clubs are only open at night. I could fail twice a day. I could double my failure rate. That's awesome. And so I went into the, the Toastmaster Club and I noticed something very different from the comedy clubs right away. These people were warm, encouraging, and sober. <laughs> so I immediately went out and joined yeah, I immediately joined four Toastmaster clubs because I wanted to quadruple my failure rate. You know, if that was truly the key and I was willing to do it, I was willing to fail, which was a huge lesson learned. See, before that in my life, I wasn't willing to fail. I didn't want the pain. So if I avoid the pain, but I also avoid the progress as well. And because an awful lot of people do things the other way around, that they start off to sort of be speakers and then they find it very hard to put the humor into the speaking. So you started off with your humor and then developed the speaking around that. Absolutely. It was, everyone's got a different path. Everyone has their own journey. And I realized I did both stand up and speaking for about six years from 
92 to 98. But around 1998, I realized I needed to focus on marketing and my heart was more in speaking. So I'm super thankful for my background in stand-up comedy. And now I host a thing called the Humor Boot Camp. So I took what I learned in the stand-up comedy world and brought it over to the speaking world to teach people how to be funnier. And so it's an integral part of what I do now, but I don't, I'll do stand up once or twice a year during our humor boot camp. We bring the class to a comedy club, but I'm kind of out of shape, if you will, because I only do it a couple times a year. It's a different muscle than speaking. But I realized in the 90s, the late 90s, that my heart was in speaking because I really had a message that I cared about. And I realized who I was and my upbringing, I resonated more with the corporate side, with the corporate clients. So that became the place that I really took off. And I had so much fun. And I realized, you know, they paid 10 times as much. You didn't have to be as funny. And the audience was sober. I thought, where do I sign up? So eventually I kind of let go of the stand-up comedy part of my business and my world and focused on my marketing and my speaking. But uh, I'm so thankful for that background. So your culmination at Toastmasters obviously was your big win. So many people think that just automatically opens doors. Well, it automatically, so not what uh, Linda's referring to is I, in 2001, I outspoke 25,000 contestants to become the world champion of public speaking. Same designation that you heard Ed Tate and he was on the podcast. And it was a huge win, but honestly, internally, it was an enormous win for me personally and my own self-confidence. But what it gave me was more invites for free speeches around the world. So it didn't actually, you know, build my business, but I looked at, okay, here I have an asset where I have these invites around the world for free. And so I created books and programs and products and my stage time university so that I could literally go speak for free, but still get the serious people who are interested in learning more to come to me, to go deeper, to learn more. So it helped give me a platform to speak, but it didn't give me a paycheck. It gave me an opportunity to market. So it's almost like you've got two springboards there. You've got you went from your your day job into your your comedy, and then from your comedy into your speaking at a, a decent level, but not getting paid for it. So how do you bring this all together to make it into the whole world, the whole package? Yeah, well, for many years, I never was a headliner comedian. So I never really, quote unquote, made it in the comedy world. I made it to middle act uh, at best, once in a while a headliner. But if you asked anybody in the comedy world, I never, quote unquote, made it. But that's okay. I found a path. I, I took a fork in the road, and it was the right fork for me. And I never became a HBO special or a you know, household name. And I'm okay with that. I help people. I get to do what I love for a living. So I'm super thankful for that. But what I realized was when I started seeing stand-up comedy and then I started learning about the speaking world, I realized that my background, entrepreneurialism, what I loved from college was perfect because that was the marriage of stand-up comedy and entrepreneurialism, that is being a speaker because you have to market yourself. You have to come up with marketing materials. You have to get in front of people. You have to elicit emotion when you present. And humor is a huge plus. So in my championship speech, I had a very funny speech. Now, I'm not quote unquote naturally funny. If you're listening to the podcast now and you're thinking, this guy isn't funny, 
I'm okay with that. But when I'm on stage doing what I do and telling my stories, I've created stories and punchlines that work in that world. And that's what works for me. And when I'm on stage, I'm on stage. You know, now we're sitting down and talking and giving the background and pulling back the curtain, if you will. But when I started realizing, Linda, that my entrepreneurialism and my stand-up comedy, when you marry those two, that is a speaker. And I think that's a, where a, a lot of people find it difficult to make that transition and to get it going. And also, I mean, you've had your ups and downs in that. It wasn't just smooth sailing. Definitely. It's never, as an entrepreneur, it's never smooth sailing. Um, and if you're not sure, look at the world right now. Uh, I learned uh, great wisdom from, I don't know if you know, Mark Sanborn. So Mark is a mentor and I had him on my podcast about unforgettable presentations and he said something brilliant. I love this man. And he said, we have to respond to the newfound pain. We have to respond to the newfound pain. So a lot of my speaker buddies, people who earn a heck of a lot more than me in the speaking world right now, they can't speak. Like there's no meetings being held. And so having to switch over to virtual for a lot of them, they, they're not ready to do that. And some of them are in the process of pivoting, but quite honestly, they're, it takes a little time, but it's the people who are resistant to it people who are resistant to change, you're not going to adapt. In 2008, when we had our recession here, a lot of my speaker friends went out of business. In 2001, when I was just getting started right after the world championship, they stopped having meetings in the U.S. Like the meetings industry was aghast. And because everyone was afraid, everyone was feared, they didn't know what was going to happen next. So the meetings industry took a dive. Well, that's exactly what's happening right now too. But the speakers who are willing to change and adapt to the newfound pain, those are the ones who made it. Some of my mentors are not even around anymore. So this is one of those pivoting moments. We have to pivot to help our customers, our clients, the people we want to serve with their newfound pain. So I had to adjust my whole company. We went from having one big live event every month to now we're doing three virtual events every month. So I didn't know how it would go. I didn't know if people would be willing to get on and spend two whole days virtually. So it was a test, but I tested it and it was remarkable. I couldn't believe it, but you know, people have the time now. So because I pivoted, uh, I'm in a great position now and my business is going well. Sometimes, Linda, I feel bad when I'm talking to people because so many of my speaker friends are just, you know, and so many people, I live in Las Vegas and we have like the biggest unemployment rate in our country because we're all casino based. And because of that, it's just devastating. So I'm careful when I talk to my friends around town because I don't bring it up. Uh, if they ask, I'm like, uh, I'm doing okay, you know, but quite honestly, my business is growing now because I already had virtual in place, but I shifted my business to upgrade it and put it front and center. But then again, it's like you said at the very beginning about, you know, you were blaming everybody else for the choices and the lack of success because the choices you make, it's reversed now. The choices that you're making are better choices, so you're getting a better result for it. Yeah, and I know you love hearing about people who learn lessons through failures, and I think that's so important. And honestly, ego. 
uh, when, when I first started in stand-up comedy, I had zero ego because I knew that I didn't know. But then after I had been around for a while, I had been in four Toastmaster clubs, I started becoming, you know, the king of the club and thinking I was better than other people. And then when I went to my coach, Mark Brown, who was going to help me, I handed him the first version of my speech and he looked at it and shook his head and said, oh, Darren, we have some work to do. And I was like, what? I did everything you told me to do. But the problem is, I was a good speaker at a amateur level, but I wasn't world-class. See, my ego got in my way. I stopped learning and I started just going my own way and I DIY'd it, do it yourself, which is not great. Uh, my mentor, Mike Rayburn, has a great quote for that. He says, you know, when you're self-taught, the problem is the teacher's not that good. That's a great one. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> Yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant. And so I've had to relearn this lesson. I'm just being transparent, Linda, that even when this, so I have been teaching presenters around the world virtually for years. So we have our live events, but we also offered virtual seats. And it was cool. It was fun. It was a way for people to connect who uh, couldn't afford to travel or they just didn't want to travel or because of work, something like that. So they connected with us virtually, but we would see them on the screen. They would see us. They would speak. We would hear them. So it was a really cool thing we developed over time. So here I am. I'm going to do a two-day training, uh, virtual presentations workshop, and I started getting friends who knew I was putting this together, and they started sending me emails about other people who are doing webinars on virtual presentations. And here's my ego crept in again. I'm like, ugh, I've been doing this for years. I know how to do it. And then I caught myself. And then I remembered, oh, Duttern, we have some work to do. And I said, well, wait a minute. What if there's one or two new ideas that I don't know about? And I became a sponge again. So I started signing up for the different webinars. And I went on one that week that I thought for sure this guy would be boring. He was awesome. And I learned from him. And I got to remember and I got to remind myself that I've got to be that sponge. We've got to be a sponge. In fact, I remember when I first met my hero, Brian Tracy, and there was a line of people. And this gentleman walked up and he was next to ask a question. He said, what do you think of Tony Robbins? And I'm like, you're standing in front of Brian Tracy and you're asking him about Tony Robbins? But I loved his response. He said, he is a sponge. You know, we have to be a sponge, especially when we're going through times of change. We got to let go of those egos and just be a sponge. I always teach when people are new to my online university, the first thing I do is I send them a private one-on-one -on -one video and I remind them that there is all these world-class ahas sitting there waiting for you to come sponge up. And you'll take them with you on stage every time you present for the rest of your career. But you've got to schedule your progress. You've got to schedule your time to log in and be a sponge. Because I think sometimes, you know, we get access to world-class advice or a book and then we forget that, oh yeah, I've got to read it, but I've got to read it with enthusiasm. So we go deeper and pull up the nuggets we have, combine them with our past experience, and that's what's going to propel us forward. It's, it's so true. And, and also, I think one of the things, you know, the biggest uh, experience that come up is about the people you surround yourself with. So who, who do you hang out with? Yeah, I love the quote by Jim Rohn. He says, you are the average of the people you spend the 
the yeah the, you're the average of the top peop, five people you spend the most time with. So I surround myself with Ed Tate, who you guys have already heard on this podcast. Uh, Craig Valentine, Mark Brown, I spend an exorbitant amount of time with him. He was my coach. Uh, he was also a world champion, uh, and he co-hosts my podcast. But together, they both keep me honest. I also. I'm very involved with my church and I have a men's group that I go to. So I have my spiritual brothers who also call me out on things when I'm doing some stupid stuff. (laughs) But we need those people that call us out in love. Uh, Patricia Fripp, another person that I have had in my top five for a long time. She's amazing. And I never get tired of hearing her even tell the same stories because there's so many nuggets in there. She's amazing. So those are a lot of my top five. And Mike Rayburn, who I mentioned, uh, Marilyn Sherman, another friend and speaker that just love, love being around. And I know one of the areas you do an awful lot of work is, is storytelling as well. You were very eminent in bringing your stories to life. Yeah, that was probably the biggest game changer for me when I work with Mark Brown, my coach. Anyone can tell a story. Very few people do it really good, really well. So Mark Brown had showed me and pointed out to me some of the mistakes I was doing. So for example, I was always telling my stories in the past tense. And Mark got me to shift and showed me the importance of bringing the listener to the moment when the story happened and letting the listener hear the dialogue back and forth between the characters. And it became so powerful that I understood what I was doing wrong because I was became very animated because of all the stage time I've had. And I loved Robin Williams. He was a hero to me. And I loved how playful he was on stage. So I'm very animated on stage. The challenge was I wasn't saying anything that helped my audience. I was like I was like a karaoke singer, you know, passionate, but yeah, not very good. And I needed to have that revelation. I needed Mark Brown to kind of hold up the mirror and show me. Now, when he combined showing me dialogue, the power of dialogue, what dialogue to say and how to say it, I combined that with my on stage animation, and it just brought my stories to a whole other level. I also realized I've become a student of storytelling. I love Michael Haig, a brilliant screenwriter coach in Hollywood. He helps Will Smith with his scripts, but he's taught me. He's the one who taught me you must elicit emotion. The purpose of story, the goal of story is to elicit emotion. And I didn't get that. So that was big. I also a big fan of Donald Miller. Uh, got a great book called Building Your Story Brand. Uh, that book, I think every entrepreneur should read it. I'm dyslexic. I don't even like to read, so I do Audible. And I'll usually do a book once or twice. I've listened to this Audible book 10 times. It's amazing. And, and that's what's surprising. Going back over things, you actually, if you're reading it or listening to it, you it's the same words, but sometimes they have different meanings when you're hearing them in a different mindset. Yeah, and you also get caught up in when there's a new concept, when you hear it the first time, you get so caught up and you're thinking about it. And while you're thinking about it, they're saying more things. So you're not picking up on the other things because you're thinking about that big revelation. So it's truly going in and being a sponge and listening to it again and again and again to sop up all of the content that's there. Now, a boring story, a boring book, you don't want to listen to it again, but one that's good, 
There's a reason it's good. And I guarantee you that if you go back and listen again and again to some of your favorite audios or audible books or reading the book, you'll pick up something else if it's content rich. And if it's content rich, you can't get it all the first time. There's a, a pastor that's a, I, I'm a big fan of. His name is Stephen Furtick. He said, revelation requires repetition. Revelation requires repetition. And so we've got to go deeper to truly absorb it so it becomes a part of us so we can take it with us. But you can't just kind of go surface level skimming. So what is there still for Darren LaCroix to achieve? What are your goals <laughs> well, next on my list, I've been uh, I've been self-sabotaging, to be honest, but I've always had in my heart that I've loved real-life story movies, uh, like Rudy is the movie that came out in 1993 that really kept me going when, in 92, I had started stand-up for the first time. So that movie resonated with me and kept me going when I thought all was lo- lost and I had no chance and no hope. So I would kind of be a sponge to that movie. And so I've always loved movies and resonated with movies. And Mike Rayburn, who I mentioned once, I was in a mentor mastermind with him, and he got in everybody's face and he said, what, you know, what is that big, hairy goal, that, that crazy dream? And I kind of sheepishly said, well, uh, I'd kind of like to have a movie script and a movie made about my story, the story that I tell on stage. But I said to him, but who am I to have a movie made about me? And I've never seen him do this before, but he slammed his hands on the table, leaned over, got right in my face, and he said, who are you not to? And so a dream was set in motion. And so I've written, it took me seven years, but I wrote the the movie script. And now I'm just starting to get it out to people in Hollywood and any contact that I know anyone that knows anyone that knows anyone. So I'm writing the book about it too, but I finished, finished the film script and now it's selling it is the hard part. So that's another set of skills to learn as well. Yeah, and I learned so much about story when I was learning about script writing. You know, I became a sponge to script writing, but it helped me in my speaking and it helped me as a teacher of storytelling as well. So we've always we can't be a motivational speaker and not have that next big dream. That's very true. So what's happening with your business? Any new items coming out or any courses? Well, we have a virtual presentations workshop that I do with Ed Tate and Mark Brown. And so we've done it. We did it a couple of weeks ago. We're doing it in another couple of days and not sure when this will come out, but chances are, I think we sold this one out. So we may do it again in a couple of weeks because we realize we're responding to that newfound pain. Um, and I've been doing a ton of webinars too. So I have one called storytellingwebinar.com. You can go check that out for free. And you've got loads and loads of videos on YouTube as well. Yes, about 1,500 of them. So just something to be going on with. <laughs> you can binge watch me while you're while you're <laughs> locked in quarantine. Well, I'm so sorry, but time, as always, gets the better of us. But it's been fantastic to hear from you, Darren, and I really appreciate your time and effort being with us. So your final words, if you were going back to speak to your younger self, Starting off with that subway, what would you actually say to them? That's a great question. Um, I would say keep your eyes open, don't give up, and you got to have faith in yourself and build your own belief along the way. You can do this. 
Be a sponge. Be a sponge. Whenever I think of a sponge or see a sponge, I always think of you. It's, it, it's that, <laughs> that strong. So thank you so, so much, Darren. And uh, hopefully we're going to be seeing your screenplay up at some time. Well, thank you, Linda. And thanks for doing what you do. I'm a fan of yours. That's why I was happy to do this for you. Thanks for having me and the invite. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded in conjunction with the Chapel FM Art Centre and East Leeds FM radio station. For more information about them and all the good work that they do is www.elfm.co.uk. And to know more about what Linda Sage is doing, her website is www.lindasage.com. Also on all the other social medias.